Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World, the practical voice podcast. This episode of VUX World is brought to you by Botmock. Teams like Accenture, GM, Delta and a whole host of other companies are using Botmock to create engaging conversational experiences. It's easy to use, it helps you prototype, collaborate and test your conversational experiences in literally just a few clicks. So if you're looking to move away from post-it notes and spreadsheets or kind of like diagrams and stuff and you're looking for a tool that will let you prototype conversational experiences easily and quickly check out botmock visit botmock.com slash vux world to find out more that's b-o-t-m-o-c-k dot com slash vux world This podcast is also brought to you by the UX Academy. Now, the UX Academy have a voice design course coming up. Starts on the 22nd of uh, July. And uh, it's going to be taught, believe it or not, by me. I'm going to be sharing a whole host of the experiences that we have learned through talking to a whole host of influencers and thought leaders and practitioners in the voice space, as well as some of the work we've been doing outside of the podcast as well. It's taught by me and Stratis Velikis of Aviva, and it's starting on the 22nd of July. If you want to take part and you want to get involved, then visit myuxacademy.com. It'll be fantastic to see you there and have you along. That's myuxacademy.com. There's still some spaces left for the course starting on the 22nd of July, and we'll hope to see you there. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, let's get to this week's episode. This week's episode is with Charles Dawes and Patrick Burden of TiVo. Now, all of you in America, you'll have known TiVo. You'll know what TiVo is. You probably use it as a verb when you're communicating and talking about recording uh, shows and and watching them later. Uh, For those in the UK, you probably have heard of TiVo, um, but you may not necessarily have heard of it or used it in the same way as some of the people in America have. Um, But essentially, TiVo, if you've ever used SkyQ's voice control, then you're using TiVo. Uh, they've been working with Samsung and Google and a whole host of other companies to put voice interactions into TV sets and set-top boxes. And today's episode is all about getting deep into what TiVo are up to and how they see voice playing a crucial role in TV. Without further ado, let's get straight to this one. Dustin and I had an absolute blast. This is Charles Dawes and Patrick Burden of TiVo on VUX World. VUX World. VUX World. VUX World. Branding with the big faces. I love listening to it. Kane Sims. Kane Sims. Kane Sims, the one and only. Britain's finest, Mr. Kane Sims. Dustin. Dustin. Dustin Coates. I like it when you guys are together and talking about boys. Without further ado, welcome to the show. So, Dustin, good evening or afternoon. It's getting on for evening over there for you now. Yeah, it's getting there. How are you doing, Kane? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, very well. It feels as though we haven't done one of these for a little while. I know, I know, and it just it feels different now that uh, we've met each other in person. We have it's, met each other I in person. I, it, this is a whole new world now. <laughs> <laughs> the rapport is even better and growing stronger every week. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, well, today I am absolutely thrilled to bring onto the show Charles and Patrick. First of all, Charles, the senior director of international marketing at TiVo. Welcome to VUX World. Thanks a lot, Kane. Really pleased to be here. You're very welcome. So we met at the Technova conference ma- March, was it March? I think it was. It was back earlier in the year. Earlier in the year. workshop in the morning. That's right, that's right. And it feels like many moons ago now. 
It's uh, yeah, but we're here. We are here. Here we go. And Charles has brought with him uh, senior director of customer solutions at TiVo, Patrick Burden. Patrick, welcome. Okay, Ken. How are you doing? Thanks for having us. Very, very good. Very good. So, where where should we start? I think it'd be useful maybe to for for the listeners and and for the audience to maybe just get a little bit of context behind the two of you and kind of what you both do potentially, and then we'll maybe just look at what TiVo are up to in the voice space and and then take it from there. So, Charles, do you want to kind of give us a little bit of overview of of what you do at TiVo and what you did previously to kind of get you to the position that you are kind of currently? Yeah, so um, I've been working in the kind of entertainment discovery world for about the last 20 years with various companies from cable and wireless communications where we launched the first digital TV solutions in the UK through with Liberty Global across Europe and then more recently with Rovi and TiVo. Um, And I currently lead our international marketing team um, on everything that's not domestic US, um, so quite a big remit. Um, I think when I'm not on a plane going somewhere evangelizing about what we do, then uh, I'm up in the northeast uh, enjoying the outdoors with my wife and kids. Um, and I'm personally a massive fan of voice, um, something that TiVo's uh, been involved in now for a number of years. Um, and I, I think it's really one of the ways that is really helping to kind of re-simplify um, a lot of what we do in the entertainment discovery space. Um, I think um, a lot of people know the name TiVo. Um, uh, We're a leading entertainment technology company and we're really focused around helping consumers find and enjoy the entertainment they love and then helping on the other side the content creators and distributors to find their audiences in a world that's got ever more complex. Um, If you look back 20 years ago, TiVo launched the first commercially viable DVR um, and actually in a lot of places, there's the verb, TiVo is a verb. People say, just TiVo that one, rather than just recording it. And when I look at that and I look back, um, I think we really kick-started the kind of revolution and people, how people consume entertainment content today because we made it really easy for people to pause, rewind, and record just at the touch of a button. And because that was on a disc rather than a tape, means that you could stack up your episodes and start to binge just like we all do today on the OTT services. Um, and as a company, we've just continued to innovate around content discovery um, and people to, to get to what they want to do and help them to relax and spend their leisure time. Um, and we work around the world with over 500 media and entertainment companies and all the biggest brands, people like Sky, Virgin, Dish, Foxtel, Google, Samsung. Um, and where most of the innovation is and now is really around personalized content discovery, um, of which conversational voice is a, is a major component. Um, and we're going to dig into that in a lot more depth. Mm. So in America, Dustin, I'm sure TiVo is like a household sort of name in America, isn't it? In terms of the actual brand. I know over here it's like the Virgin Box has got the TiVo in it. And I know you work alongside Sky. And I think the name is, is obviously well known. But I think that, am I right, Charles, in thinking that TiVo in the UK is predominantly alongside other carriers as such? Yeah, so as, as a company, we run North America. We run a we run the con, our consumer platform. Um, so you can go into an electronic store, you can go on Amazon, and you can you can buy a TiVo box. Um, and then in the rest of the world, we work with the media and entertainment companies, so the operators and the content producers, to power their solutions. Um, so in North America, you'll see a lot more people be familiar with the name TiVo, um, but elsewhere in the world, we're helping the other companies to to actually 
bring those best of breed solutions to their customers. Cool. Did you, so did you use TiVo, Dustin, when in the US before you moved to Paris? I I am sorry to say it. I'm one of those people who didn't have a TV uh, when <laughs> I was in the US. So uh, I personally didn't use TiVo, but certainly like uh, like we were just talking about, TiVo very much was a verb. And it is synonymous very much with DVR, even to this day, I believe. Cool. I'm, I'm starting to move towards that, by the way, cutting down to a bit of TV time and, and digital time in general. I'm trying to be a little bit more zen with uh, with what my garden. I'm doing my garden like a bit of a zen garden so I can chill out over there. Well, <laughs> Pat, what about you then? So tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself and about what you do at TiVo and about how you kind of, uh, you know, got to where you are and got interested in voice and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I in terms of what I do now, so... You know, Charles kind of gave gave an overview of TiVo background and where it is. But within within the within the organization, there's a content discovery uh, team, and and part of that is around search and recommendation. So I think many people know Digital Smiths historically was a search and recommendation company that TiVo actually acquired. So we acquired that technology, and then on top of that, there's an analytics platform that we call Insight that looks across search and recommendation, looks across performance and, and, and viewer behavior. But on top of that, we also have the voice solution. And um, I look after basically those three parts of the business across Europe. So look after the customers. We have a team of engineers here who, who deliver the functionality. Um, I guess where I got involved in voice was, so, so my background, actually, I've kind of slightly non- non-typical background my background's in journalism um so i started off you know kind of study journalism and was was writing away and publishing away got a job actually i was living in london at the time got a job in the bbc uh figured out i'd be producing radio 4 documentaries in you know a couple of weeks that would be that would be easy and uh got sidetracked into the world of metadata which was just kind of and as kind of you know infancy was the early days of the skybox and you know epgs became really important so I, I i stuck in there and then that became red Bean media and then ericsson came along and and and, and that kind of grew and, and the concept of content discovery started to grow at that point and then i was actually i was looking to move i'm based in dublin as we were, we were talking earlier and i was looking to move back and an opportunity came up through through Rovi at the time for metadata. So I, I took that opportunity. And that actually coincided with us delivering the first European uh, voice implementation, which was for Sky. So this was the very early days of, of you know, Sky Q before it was actually launched and before voice came on. And I got asked to lead that project um, for Rovi. I'd, I'd done a lot of work with Sky before when I was at Red B and, and knew, knew a lot of the people involved. So that was kind of my introduction to voice. Um, been around content discovery for a long time before that, but that was my first, you know, real deep uh, head first into voice. So I, I was I was in charge of that project for a long time, and you know, and, and learned a lot through there because that was you know it's it, 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 it's it's only a few years ago, but it feels like in terms of technology, in terms of where we are today, it feels like a lifetime ago because we were, you know, it was the first deployments we were doing in Europe. So since then, we've rolled out multiple languages across Europe and we've got, you know, more customers and, and, and the numbers are only growing. And, you know, we go to some of the numbers later. But that's almost, you know, predominantly my time is now spent around voice projects, voice customers, and then search and recommendation and, and the analytics piece on top. 
when when was this sky implementation you said it was the voice first voice implementation in the uk yeah so i think they launched it in i think it was 2017 around march 2017 they launched the solution um we started the project i remember starting the project late 2015 so you know that's when that was that was kind of ground zero and we started building up from that point so it was I guess, you know, they, they were also launching SkyQ in parallel. So we started the project and the, and the set-top box didn't even exist in the market. So it was, it was you know, it was a challenge for all of us. Um, but I think, you know, SkyQ was really interesting and Sky is really interesting because it's been, it's been successful for them. But because it was early, it was an early adopter, I think getting over that hump of actually, you know, making the leap to, to launch a product like that in such a big market with such a big name, was you know it took some uh took a lot of work for everyone and it took a lot of innovation from sky so you know fair juice and, um but yeah so that's i think yeah roughly around two years ago and it'll be it'll be interesting to maybe dive into what some of the things that you learned from doing that implementation was but first before we do that can we for, for the listeners who either aren't familiar with the TiVo's kind of voice capabilities or who aren't necessarily familiar or who don't use their voice when it comes to accessing or finding content or what have you, can you just kind of describe for us what the solution is and how it's accessed and how it's used? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I mean, what, what TiVo provides to our customers is we, we provide what we call a voice gateway. And effectively, a voice gateway is an all-in voice solution. So if you're going to have voice solutions, there's three pillars that you need. You need um, you need an ASR, so basically a, a speech-to-text, speech recognizer. And, you know, there's, there's third parties in the market that have been doing this for a long time. So we don't build our own ASR capability. We partner with other vendors. And we, we spend a lot of time actually looking at markets, looking at different vendors in the different markets to try and find the best one for each language and then we bring that to our customers so we we kind of act as the you know we, we take care of all the entry point for the speech the people you know they just send the, the audio to us so we partner with our ASR vendors they effectively take what is spoken into a you know a remote or you know a, a, a mic and they turn that into text and then they provide that to what we call the NLU which is the natural language understanding and the natural language understanding effectively takes raw text and it understands it and it turns it into an entertainment query. So, you know, people will, will, will ask for all sorts of crazy things in the TV, you know, especially in the early days. Um, but what we do is we, we, we take that text, we, we try and understand it by breaking it down into different components. And we also do things like lexical corrections. So, we, you know, if somebody's asking for something if they're mispronouncing it or if they you know if they can't find the content they want they can't remember the name we kind of add a level of expertise at the nlu level where we turn it into an entertainment query and really the query is broken down into two 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 key factors it's 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 entity and intent so the entity is kind of the what you know what what are they trying to do you know are they looking for an actor are they looking for a film are they are they looking for a series and the intent is what do they want to do do they want to play do they want to record you know, what's, what's the kind of the action there? And then we send that entity intent. Um, and and what, what we do is we, we actually look across the, the provider's metadata. 
and we try and find a match for our entity against their metadata. But we, we do a little bit more. So, so we have, you know, if you had to rely on just programmatic metadata to find content, you'd be limited, right? Because it, it's really very, there's a great variation across quality. You know, even if something like genres where people, some people might have genres and subgenres and categories, which are, you know, infinitely searchable and, and they're fantastic. Other people might just have movie as a genre. And that could be Harry Potter. It could be some French art house movie. It could be Mission Apollo. You know, the, there's, no, there's no breakdown. So what we do is we have a, a knowledge graph. And the knowledge graph, you know, lots of companies have knowledge graphs, but what it effectively does is it looks outside of the entertainment world for different relationships and different types of metadata. So we'll look at news sites, we'll look at wikis, we'll look at entertainment sites, and we'll start creating a, a, a bigger picture around these entities. And what that allows you to do, it allows you to be more flexible in your search. So you can search for, you know, concepts, you can say, show me, show me movies about the, um, you know, the, the Middle East politics. Show me, show me, show me a movie about Middle East politics. You would never capture that in program metadata because it's just, it's, it's quite a manual task. So our, our knowledge graph allows us to go out into the world, look at these different types of concepts, and then also create links and weights to shows. So if you have a movie about the Middle East, then, you know, that, that, that might have a certain high weighting. But there might be another program where it's, you know, it's not as important and has a low weighting. And then equally, we will correct, we will create links between those concepts. So if there's an actor who's in one movie and is in a similar movie with another person, then, you know, you create a link between those characters and you also have a score against them. And the thing is, you know, the, the, when you have all this data, you need to return the most relevant items. And that, that, that's really what the, the scoring is about. So we, we then send the um the entity to our customers to their search and we you know we hit their search and if they have a program matching that entity then we can return that for some of our customers we actually provide the search as well so we do the kind of the, the three pillars but for other customers they have their own searches or a different you know different provider and we match with those, those people so you know someone searches for a movie about the middle east we will go through and then we'll, 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 we'll do the knowledge graph, we'll do the entity intent, we'll hit their search, and Argo may be the most relevant movie, and you know, that's what we'll return. But you can get more conceptual. You can just you know, show, me, you know, show me comedy movies. You can do things like catchphrases and all that kind of stuff. And then it gets into, um, I think something we'll probably come on to, but personalization gets really interesting as well because obviously, you know, what's a, what's a popular movie for you versus me might be completely different things. So... In, in terms of delivery, if you've got those three pillars, if you've got the ASR and the NLU and the search, you need those to deliver a voice solution. And, you know, we, we, we kind of provide all three at different levels, but every customer is the same. Every customer will help them. Yeah, and I think the other thing that where we kind of go above and beyond some of, some of the more typical voice solutions out there is around the way we treat things as conversational. So it's having a dialogue and having a flow with the device so you can follow on from one query to the next. So perhaps as you could say, show me action movies, and that would give you a set of results. But then you could say, oh, from the 80s. And we know that that from the 80s relates to the action movies that you just asked for. So you'll get a list of, you'll, you'll, you'll then get a, a, a more finite set of results, which are 80s action movies. 
rather than some systems would treat those separately. And so you'd go from the 80s and it would try and look for something called from the 80s, which obviously is, is not what you're looking for. Um, and so that's that's one area where really it's pushing the boundaries and really starting to make something that's much more usable than a, just a kind of command and control based voice system. Mm. It sounds like a very <laughs> complex task from what you've described. I mean, all the different data points that you collected and all of the different kind of connections that you must be making between uh, different kind of genres and different actors and all this kind of stuff. Um, I'm, I'm assuming this has been like a steady process. Is this something that is a constant ongoing thing that you do as part of the kind of operational maintenance of this system is that you're constantly looking for new films and, and constantly looking to update the data on the back catalogue and all that kind of stuff? Or is it something that you did a whole load of work on, it's done and, and now you've kind of, you're rolling it out? How, how much kind of maintenance is there in all this? Yeah, it's, 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 it's non-stop. Um, you know, obviously our, our customers and on our TiVo box in the US that uses this as well, but, you know, obviously programs are constantly updating. So we need to be aware of the catalog so that when the query hits search, it's, it's relevant to that. But equally on the, on the knowledge graph level and on the, 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 the kind of intelligence level of the NLU, you need to know the relevancy of a show will change based over time and based over things that happen, you know, if an actor dies, for example, then suddenly a movie might become instantly more po popular than it was yesterday, just because people are, people are looking for it. So we, we, it's a, it's a, it's a constant update of that, that kind of spider gram that we have within the knowledge graph and all the, you know, the, the links between the different types of content and the different types of entities, that relevance score changes, you know, daily as does the catalog of the content. So yeah, I mean, the implementation, you're right, you know, that, that early stage where you have to create those connectors, that's definitely the heavy lifting. And that's, that's you know, that's the weeks and months and the engineering work that goes into a deployment. Once you get live, it, it, it does tend to have a, you know, hopefully a steady state where that takes care of itself. But in terms of relevancy, that never, that never goes away. And which parts of the stack are you building inside TiVo and which ones are you going out and trying to find partners for? Um, so specifically related to voice and conversation, we build the NLU part of the stack, um, which is the piece in the middle. So that's the knowledge graph and the, the you know, the, the natural language understanding. We also been, build a search, which is the backend search, which is, you know, personalization and recommendation and having that search catalog. The ASR, which is the entry point, we partner with other people on that end. So, you know, the, of, of the three, we, we, we build two and we partner with one. But actually what we do when we go to our customers, like I said, we, we actually act as the gateway for even the ASR. And, and the reason we do that is, um, you know, it's, it's useful for a customer because obviously it's one less partner they need to hit. So that's, that's useful. But equally, if an ASR vendor becomes more successful in a different market, we want to maintain the ability to swap to the most, you know, successful ASR vendor, because that 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 piece, that accuracy piece at the you know at the gateway is key, right? And this is where you get into when you start doing deployments. One of the key you know, you know key challenges is making sure that the customer is confident that you can do this. And everybody says it's funny. I was I was I was in the Nordics yesterday. I was talking to Charles about this earlier, and. Um, the customer we we're talking to said, you know, you'll never be able to do our language. It's just, it's too complicated. And, 
I don't, you know, if I had a euro for every time someone said that to me, I'd, you know, have 25 euro or whatever. <laughs> but everybody just has that preconception that their language is too difficult, you know, and everybody kind of looked at, you know, when we did Sky in the UK, they're kind of like, you know, how are you going to do Scotland versus Wolverhampton versus Wales, you know? So you, you, there's a lot of work to prove that, and the ASR is invaluable at that point. So, you know, you need to have the right partners. And how do you do Scotland versus Wolverhampton versus Wales? Because that's then, presumably, if, if that's part of the ASR, that's not necessarily anything you've got any great control of, is it? Yeah, so so we have it to a degree. So on, on the NLU level, we do we do lexical correction. So if if the ASR, even if the ASR misinterprets a query, and, and sends us a string because we know it's in an entertainment world. We'll look at that string and we'll say, okay, so, you know, the kind of the classic example um, is Tom Fanks. We always, we always use this example. You know, if the ASR picks up a Tom Fanks, then we know Tom Fanks is not an actor. Tom Hanks is an actor. Therefore, we'll do a correction level at that point. But on the ASR level, what, what we typically find is that people, it's, it's a data race, right? So it's, it's people who have the most data um, who can train their language models tend to be the most successful ASR vendors. This is where, um, you know, people like Google have been very successful because they have YouTube, right? They have Android. They have people speaking to devices all day and all night. And by collecting these language models with multiple accents and then understanding what the returns are, they've been able to be very accurate in their ASR response. So I think like a lot of things in, in, in a kind of search world, the people who have the more data are able to train the models better and train the algorithms better that they tend to be more successful. And how are you determining when you go into each of these markets, which the best ASR provider to partner with is? So we, we actually, we, we, we provide, we run tests. So we've got, we've got our own set of data. So our own set of audio recording and we run those audio queries, you know, on your, it's, it's, it's a vast volume of audio queries. We run those through the ASR queries, uh, through the ASR vendors. And then we look at the results and, and, you know, you can look at the results and you can do that on a, on a, on a kind of a, uh, an automated level, but we also actually take native speakers and we go through, you know, the audio files, we go through the responses and we find out, you know, we take a percentage and we go, okay, let's look at that percentage and let's actually listen to the audio. Let's look at the responses and then let's get an accuracy score. So we have this constantly evolving accuracy score around ASR and, you know, we kind of track that, you know, ASR is, is, is interesting. So the, the, the human ASR of, you know, just the two, you know, the four of us speaking here, you'll only get 96% of what I say. So, you know, even with my accent, whatever, you know, you, 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 you will not get 100% of what I say. So automation is never going to get to 100%. So you've got to find the most accurate in each market. I think it's getting really interesting because people are getting into the 90s in terms of accuracy, in terms of automated accuracy. And once you get to that level, that's, that's pretty good, right? That's, you know, you're, you're, hitting, you're hitting almost human level accuracy at that point. We, we saw with IO, we talked about this kind of a few weeks back with the 
on-device ASR and how exciting it was to, to see the speed of that. Is latency a concern for you as well, or does that not really factor in when you're building out the ASR or the NLU or anything? It, it, it factors in in that it's something that you monitor, right? And something that, that when you set up the stack, you need to be very aware of. I think everything that we do is a cloud-to-cloud integration. So, you know, from the ASR to our NLU to our customers, it's pretty quick. I mean, if you look at any of the solutions, it's, you know, it's one of the pillars that we think is really important is it needs to be fast because when people start using it first, if it's slow or if it's clunky, they may not come back to it. But if it's fast and it's accurate, they'll keep using it and they'll use it again and again. And I think what's, you know, what's interesting for us is the, the growth and adoption, not just the numbers in queries and numbers of customers, but the actual really interesting number for me is the average query per user is around 35 per month across our customer base at the moment. So 35 voice queries per month. If you compare that with text search on a remote control, the industry average is like two at best, maybe one, maybe two. So 35, but that 35 has grown from, you know, eight, 12, 24. It's just, it's gone up and up and up. And that would indicate that people are, once they start using it, they're pretty, they're, they get hooked pretty quickly and they're loyal, which is, which is good. Wow. So it sounds as though you've got um, a fairly good idea of how you're measuring success um, on the kind of like quantitative side. So you've got like, um, you know, you're testing the ASR, you're making sure that you've got that as best as it can be, you're monitoring the latency, you're making sure that that's fairly low, you're looking at kind of increased usage over time. I wonder if this is maybe is a question for you, uh, Charles, in terms of that's that's the kind of data side. How are you monitoring the success of this from the kind of uh, qualitative side? From Is there anything that you're doing specifically to kind of make sure or to see whether or not all of this is being successful in, in the real world? Yeah, so as a company, we we actually spend a lot of time doing qualitative research as well. Um, It's just looking at the numbers that come out of the system. So we run various different studies in various different places around the world and really look and sit with people and really try to get into depth and understand their entertainment consumption and how what we're doing is changing that and affecting it. Um, And because one of the things we've done as an industry is we've taken something that used to be really simple, which was... Uh, being able to watch a video or watch a piece of entertainment content um, and giving people what they want, which is more and more and more choice, but not necessarily giving them the tools to be able to actually find and and discover that content and then enjoy it. Um, So you've got this kind of anytime, anywhere, any device, any piece of content. But what we see people coming back all the time saying is, I feel overwhelmed. There's too much choice. How do I, how do I, get into this how do I find the content and one of the things we've seen in, in some of our research is something that we called show dumping and there's around about a third of people have experienced this so you've got a, a show that you're loving watching you're one two three seasons into it and then you stop and when we talk to people about why they stop it's because it's just become too difficult they can't find it anymore or the industry's moved it from one place to another or it's gone suddenly gone behind a paywall. Um, and that's not great for people. But So one of the things we've actually seen on the voice side is kind of this re-simplification of the experience. Um, when you sit down to watch something, 
generally you kind of sit on this spectrum of you either know exactly what you want to look for or what you're looking for, or you don't really have a clue, but you know you want to be entertained. And we see somewhere, in the, and looking at different studies, look at our own studies, look at ones from the BBC, look at from other people, um, somewhere between about 60 and 80% of the time, you'll sit down and you'll know what you want to watch. Um, and the goal then is to try and get you there as quickly as possible. And then the time you kind of have a general idea that you want something to entertain you but you don't really know so then it's a kind of a different different story um i think what's really interesting is is you go and you look at those people who know what they want to watch quite a lot of the time you may not know exactly what it's called or you know it's that show that was on on sunday night and you know it had such and such an actor in it um and where we really excel and where that kind of that knowledge graph that Patrick was talking about really comes into its own is having that understanding of entertainment content that's wider than just a title um, or wider than just an actor's name and being able to then have somebody say something into the microphone be able to deliver them to that piece of content um, is really key and we really see that coming back through when you talk to people um, about their experience, that's one of the things that they really, really value is that kind of that re-simplification or that, that shortcut to content. Um, and I know Patrick Office describes it as a, it's this wormhole um, through an ever more complicated interface that's generally driven by content categories and things that make sense from a technical point of view, but from a consumer point of view, kind of, People outside of outside of working in the industry don't really understand why things are in certain buckets or why things are structured as they are. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's that that kind of resimplification is really one of the key things that it does. Well, the remote control is an absolute nightmare of a device to use anyway, isn't it? You know, Patrick, you were talking about there around something like two percent of people search on the remote control. Have you ever tried actually trying to do that? And all the keyboards are laid out differently and you've got to scroll from one end of the screen to the other. And if you've got a big 55-inch TV or whatever, it'll take you all day to scroll to the other end of the screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny. I mean, you even see you see all sorts of things in the remote control space from kind of like devices that you can point and based on how you move them, be able to move a, a cursor across the screen. But there's nothing more simple than just being able to press a button to speak into something or being able to say a, a, a wake word and be able to actually just then just describe what you want. Maybe actually, Kane or Dustin, maybe a question for you guys because you, you talk to a lot of people about this. So do you think the remote control is, has a, a, is on its way out or do you think even in a voice-led world it's still going to have a place? It's interesting. For, for me, my um, we got, unfortunately, I mentioned a 55-inch TV. I had to sell my 55-inch TV when we moved out of our flat because it wouldn't fit in our front room in the house. So I've now got a smaller telly, but we had to get a new one. And with it, it's a Samsung one, and it comes with this, um, the remote is tiny. It's like a, a tiny little strip, and all it's got on it is a microphone button at the top. 
a little circle with like you can press up, down, left, and right, and a, and a button in the middle to go press go. Some volume buttons, channel up and channel down, and a pause button. And that's basically all it's got. And it comes with another remote, which is like you know full of all the buttons and all that kind of stuff. But I haven't ever even used that. So I try and use the voice. Funnily enough, we've got the Virgin uh, set top box, which has got TiVo in it. I use the uh, voice. Uh, control for that for finding tv content and if you know rt wants to put bbc cbb's on in the morning i'll just use my voice so i've used it more and more but even when i'm not using that the remote control itself is now slimmed down to the point that all i really need is to move up down left or right or press go basically in volume that's pretty much it i don't know what your thoughts are justin well, you yeah. don't have a TV. Do you still not have a TV now? No, so I have a TV now, and it's actually interesting. I was with uh, a provider when I first moved to France that actually put an entire keyboard on the remotes, uh, which <laughs> that solved the, sort of the, the problem you were talking about, Kane. But now uh, it's interesting because my remote for my TV is just a typical remote. Uh, I don't use the voice all that often on the TV because it's in French and it just does not understand my accent at all. Uh, but with my lights, I recently, in fact, bought a remote for my lights. Uh, I've been using it with voice all the time, but I find that the voice in some situations, or sorry, rather the remote in some situations, is a better use. Uh, often when my wife is sleeping and I don't want to wake her up, I'll just use the remote to quickly turn off the lights. Or when I first get home, this is the reason why I bought it. Uh, I have a long hallway when I first enter. And instead of screaming down the hallway, turn on the lights, uh, I'll just use that remote. Or uh, it will dim or brighten the lights, which is something that I find is always a little tricky to do with voice with the current setup. So I still think the remotes have some uh, uses, especially because you have that tactile feedback sometimes, which is always really nice. Uh, but definitely, I think this is what we talk about all the time with voice is that Voice isn't for everything. Uh, voice is good for some things, and what it's good for, it's really good for. And what it's not good for, we shouldn't try and shoehorn in to voice just because we want everything to be on voice. Let's see what voice is best thought, and let's just really make that really good. Hmm. What do you think, Patrick and Charles? Do you, do you think the remote is coming to an end and the, the, the mics will be in the TVs without the need for that, or do you think there's still a place? No, I mean, I think from, from our point of view, I think that there's a, both coexist. Um, I think there's, there's, like you say, there's, there's use cases where actually pressing buttons still makes much more sense than trying to do something through a voice interface. Um, and so it's really, really like you say, it's let's, let's use the best technique and the best technology and the best implementation to be able to do the task that the consumer wants to do um, as in, in the, the simplest and, and easiest way for them um, and not Give them something that just because it's the latest, greatest, shiniest thing um, makes their life really difficult again because that's that's the wrong implementation. I think um, what, one interesting thing we've seen is since we we first launched the solution, a, a, a newer feature that's become really popular is what we call command and control, and this is effectively using you know, voice as a remote control. So play, stop, skip forward, all that kind of stuff. And that's that's really, you know, some of our implementations, that's 35, 40% of all queries are channel command. And for things like, you know, looking for a channel, it makes absolute sense because, 
you know, there's so many channels and nobody knows the numbers anymore. And it's, you know, SD and HD and all these different versions. So that really makes sense. But also, and, and I do this and it's a really weird thing to do, but I actually use the voice service to do something that would be easier to just press a button. So I found myself recently turning off the TV <laughs> using voice. So you have to press a button and then go off. Actually, I would just press one button and turn the thing off. So uh, I don't know what that's like. That's, that's funny, because right? actually for turning the TV on and off, I actually use voice there you go. probably 95% of the time because it's one of those things, you walk into the room and you can say, turn on the television. You don't have to think, oh, where did I last put the remote control? Where's it going? Oh, it's under the cushion. I can't find it. Um, so some of those, but I think some of the other examples I've seen people using is things like being able to turn on and off subtitles and that kind of stuff where mm. actually it's something you'd think, oh, maybe I should, uh, people would use a remote control to do that. Maybe there's a button on it. But quite often, even if there is a button on the remote control, actually it's un- got some symbol on it that nobody understands. Um, so there's, there's lots of different cases where it's kind of, you have to really look at it and see which is most appropriate. Um, I think it's it's one of those areas as well where kind of on the demographic side, um, it's really interesting to look at like the usage of voice. Because I remember when we first started back, I mean, we've been talking voice since 2014, but one of the areas that people said initially was, oh, no older people are ever going to use this. It's only going to be the kids. Um, and actually one of the groups that's really embracing voice is the the older generation, the older demographics. Because if you think about it, as you get older, actually your your dexterity becomes less, um, your eyesight starts to fail. Um, and actually, when you look at those remote controls that we just talked about that have got far too many buttons on them, uh, they're just too much for people. So actually, once you go through the process of helping people understand what a voice solution is and how it works and how it can help them, um, we see lots and lots of that continued adoption and continued kind of snowball effect in in usage. Also, what I think people don't realize as well as this older generation, my parents' generation, for example, they're already used to controlling their TV by voice. It just happened to be 20 years ago. It was son, daughter, go change the channel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. That's true. I mean, I've seen, I've seen my mother-in-law uses it. Whenever she comes around, um, it used to be that because of that slim remote that I was talking about, there's no labels on any of the buttons. It's just like a black remote. So you, you don't really know what it, what it does really. Um, so she'd always ask me to put CBBS on for, for the little one. And I'll just obviously pick it up and just say CBBS and it'll change the channel. And after I did that four or five times, I mean, she, I'm not, she's not old or anything like that. You know what I mean? We're talking about older generation, but she's not like old or anything like that, but it's like someone who doesn't really use voice that much. They've got an echo and they've started to use that a bit more, but it's probably another example of how once you get used to it, you're more comfortable doing it elsewhere. So now, you know, she's picking the remote up, CBBS, BBC One, all that kind of stuff. And she's kind of using it, um, which is really interesting. Uh, I think the other thing that's the other thing that's really interesting is is around kind of like the personalization of it and how we can use voice to personalize. Because if you think about it, when when you make a query, inherently you're it's about you. Uh, you might not say for me or I or explicitly say that it, it, it I want something that's personalized to me, but actually you do. And, 
then if you take that a step further and you look at some of the biometrics that are out there, maybe Pat wants to talk a little bit about it, um, around how you can uh, identify, not necessarily identifying the specific person in the room, but identifying the type of demographic that they sit into based on the, on their speech um, is something where actually I think we're going to see a lot of development going forwards uh, into making the experience really great and really personalised. Yeah, I, I actually think it kind of cooks back into the previous point as well around different different groups. But I think what's going to drive this um, is probably kids, actually, because kids, you know, are, are big adopters of voice, and similar to the older older generations. You know, it's just easier for them to use it because UIs are so difficult to navigate at the moment. And, you know, my three-year-old and my five-year-old can't, actually type you know they can't you know, they certainly can't spell might and you know so so voice just works for them but actually as a using biometrics to identify that they're a kid speaking um there's a couple of things so you can obviously recommend kids content and you can send them into kids kids content but you can also send them into kids zones and we're starting to see customers do this now and explore this where you have a, a an environment where you're just showing kids content rather than a mixture of adult content. So, you know, in some UIs today, if my kids search for, for you know, Paw Patrol or whatever, when that show is finished, they'll come back out and whatever was streaming on the TV when I last turned it off, that channel is going to be up there, right? So if it's a news channel, they'll come from Paw Patrol to some horrific thing happening somewhere. So that using that as a gateway into kid zones and then you know to, to to limit the content those people can view those audience can view i think that's going to be a big driver towards this kind of biometrics around personalization and then the next step beyond that is the bit charles is talking about where you know when i say what's on tonight or show me movies it knows who i am from a from a profile level and then starts building recommendations based on that so yeah i think that, that's going to get really interesting hmm Netflix do that, don't they? I think as soon as you open Netflix, it says, do you want to go down the kid route or do you want to go down the kind of adult route sort of thing? It's interesting though, because you're talking about, um, you're talking about not just personalization, how I thought you'd be talking about it in terms of last week I watched, I don't know, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So now when I search for something involving, I don't know, a film that Will Smith might be in, maybe you should recommend that because you know he's in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or something. Um, but you're also talking on a deeper level than that in terms of trying to understand the kind of person that I am and how old I might be and all that kind of stuff. So it's going a bit deeper than I than I thought. Yeah, I mean, the the level of that personalization, that kind of Will Smith um, example, I mean, that's what we do from a search and recommendation perspective, right? So we build these models based on your behavior and we'll recommend content you know, we'll, we'll suggest new content to you or we'll predict content because we know you always watch the news at nine o'clock, whatever. But, you know, and even even the Netflix experience where you, you need to have, you need to actively do something to say, well, I'm an adult or I'm a kid, I'm going to choose a profile. I mean, service providers have kind of shied away from that profile view typically because, you know, it's, it's another click, right? It's another gateway into watching content. So... I think voice helps with that, but but then gives you that deeper level of personalization. I think with you know when it gets to demographics, it's it's you know it's a, it, the kids one is the most obvious one. I think when it goes beyond that, there, there's there's obviously a 
data issue around, you know, you don't want to get too detailed about, about your profile of a customer. It's all about building a profile of a viewer rather than an individual. So I think, you know, there's that, that's a consideration. But yeah, I mean, if you, if you marry that personalization through voice and then you can say, right, there's Kane, you know, we recognize Kane as profile A, he has this profile of content. Then the, the concept of you flicking on the TV and saying, what's on tonight? should work for you right you know it should be able to predict what you want to watch at that time or suggest content you know we talk a lot about the difference between a tuesday night and a saturday night right so tuesday night you can predict you're going to watch the news at nine o'clock whatever saturday night you might have a glass of wine and you might you know you might be feeling a bit more open-minded and you you know let's not predict news then let's let's send you a movie for example a voice could be the gateway to that and it could avoid that kind of profile login that people, you know, Netflix have done it really well and people are used to it. But I wonder if somebody introduced, if a service provider introduced it now and made a change or solution, people might be a little bit, you know, slower to turn on the TV. Hmm. Do you mean, do, do you, when you say um, in terms of profile A, are you talking about this TV is a profile or are you talking, so for, so for example, that's kind of what Netflix does. You log in, that's your account, but me and my wife share the account. So sometimes when I log in, one of the recommended films for me is like Bridesmaids or something like that. You know, yeah, what I mean? yeah. it's like, doesn't match what I've kind of been watching previously. So are you talking that level in terms of when the TV turns on, what's being watched and then personalizing based on this TV set, watches the news at nine o'clock and sometimes watches Jeremy Kyle in the morning or probably not anymore given that it's been cough. But <laughs> or are you are you looking at the voice that says the query and then saying, well, that's male and the male voice when it says this query is usually on a Saturday morning and we'll recommend this. Con- are you personalising it down to that level or are you just saying when the, when this TV turns on, that's one profile? It's, it's actually a bit of both. So, I mean, we're personalising it to that male voice at that time, turns on TV and, you know, we know profile A likes this type of content. But... You know, the argument against personalization, or not, not against, but the argument, you know, which kind of deflects some of personalization is you don't know who else is in the room, right? Even if you, even on a profile level, there's other people in the room. But, but there are other factors that you can add. So, you know, when Kane, we recognize Kane and Kane, you know, turns on TV and says, what's on tonight? We're not assuming you're in the room on your own, but we do know that when you do that normally on a Saturday night at this time, you look for this type of content and it might be different. You might do it in the Saturday afternoon. You might turn on the football, for example, and that that's a different type of experience. Sorry for very, very typecasting sexist roles. Mm-hmm. Like, but you know, you might, you might turn on the football at three o'clock on a Saturday, but then at nine o'clock on a Saturday night, you might watch bridesmaids, you know, and that, 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 that might be a completely acceptable thing too. So it's a blend of, of two, you know, it's, it's, it's not just profile a, therefore this is what you watch. It's more about building a profile, building algorithms that recognize the type of content that you watch so that we're predicting content that we think you'll like, but also, you know, suggesting new content. Do you have any recommendations for companies who don't have quite the reach of TiVo, who don't have quite the wealth of data that you have to be able to feed into these personalization engines? Do you have any recommendations for them when they're building their voice applications to tailor the content to the users? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, we always start, we have, we have a, a checklist of data that if customers can provide to us, you know, we can provide 
pretty pretty amazing levels of personalization around you know that return path data that 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 we get in terms of records views clicks you know all that navigation on a ui the more that people can give us i think you know obviously the better but the reality is when we go into customers even even big tier ones you know when we go in and talk to them that data tends to be in five different places and it's not uniform and the formats are all funny and you know Tony over in the business unit, you know, he doesn't like this. No, it's, it's always, it's always fragmented. So I think the key for us is to take, take the data that's available to us and try and build the best models that's available to them. But, but also, you know, we do pull in things like popularity. We do pull in trending. We do look across, you know, the concept of collaborative filtering across, you know, what, what are, what are different lookalikes and different types of people watching. We do pull that data in as well. So we will build models, even if we don't have, you know, you know, gold star return path data, we will be able to build models based on, you know, based on the, the users, based on the, the, the service that it's providing and based on what other people like at that time. So it's, it's, it's it is a blend. You know, I, I would love if everybody had this gold star data would, would make things very easy, but the reality is they don't. One of the things that I would really like to see, and it might come back to, might come down to that, and I don't know if this is a TiVo problem that TiVo would be trying to solve, or whether this would be, for example, a Samsung problem that Samsung might be looking to solve. But on our TV, if I search for something and it's not kind of on the Virgin box, it'll throw me back to YouTube and it'll search YouTube, which is fine, but there's a load of other apps on the TV. There's Netflix, there's, you know, BBC, iPlayer, there's, like, whichever other ones there is. So in, in terms of thinking about the future, and, and if this isn't the case, then maybe you can give us a few other things about where you see this kind of heading in the future. Is that kind of something that would you'd be looking to happen in terms of joining together all of the apps across the one kind of unit? Is that something that, that TiVo would look to do? Or is that something that... Samsung would look to do and, and is that something that you see happening? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely something that we do already. Um, and we, it's, it's funny because it's, the world's gone from people going to aggregators to get their content to the world moving towards having lots and lots of separate apps. And the way we really see it is it's actually going to go back to aggregators. Now, there may be different aggregators to the ones before, but actually what you have to have is you have to have that ability to have that index across all of the different content sources. So if you look at, for instance, our consumer platform in the US, then if you go and you search for a piece of content, we're going to tell you if it's in, if it's on broadcast TV, if it's already on your disc, if it's on Netflix, if it's on Amazon Prime, if it's on Hulu, if it's on any of the other OTT services. Um, and that's really what the consumer wants. And you have to always look at this from a consumer point of view. Um, the consumer knows a piece of content out there um, and they just want to be able to have it and consume it. So being able to point them to where it is without them having to think, oh, this is a show from this broadcaster or this service um, is, really the, is really the holy grail. And it's really what we do already and what I think a lot of services are going to head towards um, as we as we see them develop. Um, the other interesting thing as well is actually having the ability to have that overarching content catalog. One of the great things we 
we have and that having that knowledge graph and having that huge amount of entertainment metadata. Um, because if somebody searches for a piece of content that they know exists in telling them it doesn't exist is the wrong thing to do. So if you're looking for a movie and that movie is only on at the cinema at the moment, actually telling them it doesn't exist isn't, isn't the right experience. Tell them it exists. Tell them it's not. It, it's on at the cinema and maybe you can have a service that then sells them a, a ticket or whatever. Um, but at the same time, having them be given the ability to say, oh, you're interested in that. Let's bookmark it. Let's tell you when it actually comes on to one of those services that is available to you um, is also really important. So it's going into, it's kind of looking at it, what we term is kind of like the aggregation level of understanding exactly where a piece of content sits and not just doing that thing of throwing you, like you say, back into YouTube because pretty much guaranteed YouTube, if you search for something, you're going to get a piece of video content that matches that word or title. It's not necessarily going to be anything to do with actually what you were looking for um but it'll give you a it'll give you a piece of video not necessarily giving you the right piece of video and i think there's a much better experience that's available and that's kind of what we're for i experienced that exact thing today when i asked google uh the google home hub to carry on watching the youtube video that i was playing on tv in the front room so i said hey google carry on playing youtube and it started showing me some videos of some vloggers saying what i'm playing on youtube started a carry on movie for you yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, justin any any final kind of wrap-up questions or final thoughts for, for patrick and charles no, I think we could we could go on for a lot longer. You've got a lot of interesting technical and user experience challenges that you've got ahead of you that you seem to be tackling very well. And I think we were able to get some very meaty things that anyone could apply to their voice application. So uh, definitely appreciate you coming on. Where can people kind of uh, check out to, to find out a little bit more about this stuff? Do you publish stuff or what, what can people do if they want to either follow you online or find out a bit more about what you're up to? So you can follow us on social media. So um, looking for TiVo for Business is generally the handle. Um, there is a TiVo handle as well for like Twitter and stuff, but that's very much focused at the consumer platform in the U.S., can, talking to people who are actually subscribers to TiVo. So from a from a kind of partner tech point of view, it's TiVo for Business, both on Twitter and LinkedIn. Obviously, you've got the website, um, which is business.tivo.com, um, and uh, lots and lots of information on there. Um, or equally, you can find and connect uh, Patrick or myself and uh, be very happy to, to talk further with people. Fantastic. Patrick, Charles, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely immense. No, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's uh, been really good uh, to discuss some of these topics with you guys. That was Charles Dawes and Patrick Burden of TiVo. Thank you so much for joining us. That was a really, really interesting conversation. 35 times a month it's used on average voice when it comes to searching and interacting with the TV. That's unbelievable. Um, such an interesting conversation. Loved hearing about the technology that you're using as well and how all that kind of hangs together. Loads and loads of insights there from anyone, really, who's looking to uh, use voice to increase or help their search uh, capabilities. Then, you know, there's a whole host of stuff in there for you. It was absolutely immense. Thank you, Charles and Patrick, for joining us. Thank you, Dustin, as always. And, boys and girls, thank you all for listening. Until next time, see you later. Bye.